Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Ayala Fader to talk about her book, Hidden Heretics, Jewish Doubt in the Digital Age. Ayala, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Sure. I am a native New Yorker. I grew up on the Upper West Side, and I fell in love with anthropology in college And after a break, I decided to go to graduate school. And um, I actually went in to study um, Spanish-English bilingualism. I was interested in working in Mexico. But it was a moment in anthropology where a lot of um, scholars were deciding that it might be um, more ethical in some ways to work in communities in which they themselves lived. And while Hasidic Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews are really not my community as a more secular Jew, but also a New Yorker, I felt like it was a project that was closer to home and that would implicate me in some ways as having a shared background, if not a shared everyday life. Um, And I started to do some research and I realized there was very little work in Hasidic communities in Brooklyn on Yiddish, the kinds of Yiddish that they were using. And there was also not very much work on women and young children at that time. So I ended up doing um, my fieldwork, my ethnographic fieldwork for my dissertation in Borough Park. And that was the basis for my first book. And then I've been- Fantastic. Yeah. And then, sorry. And then I was fortunate to get a job at Fordham where I've been in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology. Okay, great. So next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. Sure. So um, I had just finished my first book, and I thought that I had another article or two. There was material that I hadn't really used in my book, and I wanted to write an academic article both about Hasidic bloggers and also about um, these inspirational uh, lectures that I had gone to for Hasidic women um, that were circulated on audio cassette. But what happened was I thought I was just going to finish those two articles over the summer. But um, what happened was that the research that I started to do that summer actually led me to um, these different communities and ideas that I had no idea that had existed while I was doing my fieldwork. Some of them actually hadn't. For example, the Internet was not such um, a central issue as it is today. But what I learned was that there were um, people, especially the Hasidic bloggers, who who had lost their faith but had decided to stay in their communities. I learned that the community itself, the broader ultra-Orthodox community, was um, actually experiencing what they called a crisis of emuna or a crisis of faith, and that there was a lot of concern that there was this flood of 
of young people leaving the ultra-Orthodox community, which is numerically not really true, demographically not really true, but there was a lot of concern about that. Um, And then around 2012, when there was a huge anti-internet rally in what is now City Field um, Arena in uh, Queens, I just knew that there were all these changes ongoing in ultra-Orthodox communities, and I knew I had to study them, and that's what led me to do that. Okay. So, yeah, let's start by talking about the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community uh, in the United States, broadly, even if we can. Um, Tell us about who they are and what their lives are like. Um, So ultra-Orthodox itself is a very controversial word. Um, I decided to use it because a lot of the people I worked with used it, but it's a broad term. It includes both Hasidic Jews and what are called Yeshivish Jews. They both have a similar level of religious stringency in terms of Jewish religious practice, um, although there's a huge amount of diversity in that term and in between the yeshivish and Hasidic Jews. The groups that I was looking at came primarily after World War II to the United States, after the Holocaust, as refugees, and they rebuilt their communities. They didn't assimilate, as so many had predicted that they would, um, in fact, they got increasingly religiously stringent. Um, there's interesting sort of um, archival work that shows that ultra-Orthodox Jews, even Hasidic Jews in the 1950s, women sometimes wore skirts that just grazed their knees. That's something that wouldn't happen today. So the, the observance has gotten increasingly stringent. But one of the things that's important that I have emphasized in a lot of my work is that um, Ultra-Orthodox Jews are not really living in enclaves. They're not some throwback to a pre-modern past, as some people imagine them. And they do look very different, actually, from the people around them. But the ways that they have been able to rebuild and grow their communities to such an incredible extent is because they are part of modern life. Um, They participate in the institutions and the um, political processes that benefit them. They vote, they use uh, the state resources. There's a lot of poverty in their communities um, and they have support for housing and food stamps. Um, So they're very much part of modern life, Um, but the way of life that they live is really all encompassing. So while they live in kind of opposition to those around them. They have their own private Jewish schools. They speak their own languages. Hasidic Jews speak Yiddish and English. Yeshivish Jews speak English and a variety of language that's called Yeshivish, which is English with mixtures of Hebrew and Yiddish. They have their own calendar that really determines the kinds of work that they can do. Um, They have a different idea about gender where men and women occupy very different spaces and have different responsibilities. And when it comes time to get married, um, they have arranged matches. So they're very different from the kinds of more progressive or liberal Judaism that you see in other parts of even New York. Like I grew up in a reform synagogue. It's a very, very different kind of Judaism, both theologically, but also in terms of everyday life. Um, And again, ultra-Orthodox is um, a kind of controversial term. Some people use the term Haredi, uh, which means um, 
which is another, which is more of an Israeli term. It means those who tremble. But um, I decided that it was more helpful to use the term that the people I worked with use. And also, because I'm an anthropologist, I'm really interested in being in conversation with other anthropologists who um, who think about religion in particular kinds of ways and culture and politics. And I feel like the term ultra-Orthodox allows me to be in greater uh, conversation. Okay. Um, I also want to ask you to say a few words about religious doubt, uh, how you define it and how you approach this concept as an anthropologist. Um, so I actually de- decided that um, based on my field work, so that these ideas actually came out of my years of doing ethnographic research, that I was seeing two different kinds of doubt. There's a doubt that defines religious faith, which means that it's expected. It's not that any kind of religiously observant or a person of faith doesn't experience doubt. It's the issue that across the life cycle, even though there are points where you will definitely feel doubt, it's the practicing of religious activities, rituals, and ways of life that is, and struggling with those doubts, that is actually what defines faith. And so doubt is, um, in that way, is a, um, is a normal part of any religious person's life. But the kind of doubt that I was working with um, is a doubt that actually troubles faith. And I decided to call that life-changing doubt. And that's the kind of doubt that refuses to stay inside a person. It becomes social and discursive, meaning that people talk about it with each other. And it's this kind of doubt that actually makes people leave or dramatically change their life. So for the people living double lives that um, Hidden Heretics is about, um, they decided that they really couldn't leave. They had families they loved. They didn't want to hurt them. So that doubt had to somehow, um, that doubt caused them to rethink their whole way of life and the what they had been brought up with. But they had to practice um, the kinds of exploring and different ideas that they began to embrace in secret. Um, they did it with other people anonymously, usually online and eventually in person. But these things had to be kept secret. And I, I remember a person who told me about a therapist that he had seen when he confessed that he had this kind of life-changing doubt. And the therapist yelled at him and said, why can't you just keep practicing? Lots of people have questions. Just keep practicing and your faith will come back. But the kind of life changing doubt that I am writing about here is a doubt that really can't just remain inside. It's made real with other people. And I think for a lot of the rabbinic leadership, the, the dangerous part of this doubt, and that's why there was that crisis of faith where there was a lot of communal worry about people who were leaving. The, the dangerous part of that kind of doubt was that it became very public. It was made real with other people across all kinds of media. Um, and so that's the kind of doubt that, um, that really is the focus of what I was writing, what I wrote about. I would say too, that not all people with life changing doubt are atheists. I sort of assumed before I did my research that they were, but in fact, what I discovered among people with life changing doubt was that there was a continuum. 
So on one end were the people who were enlightened. That's a term that they use that refers actually to the Jewish enlightenment, but it means kind of open-minded, meaning they weren't as religiously stringent and they had more liberal ideas taken from usually American society around them, things like pluralism, the value of tolerance, um, things like that. After the enlightened, there were skeptics. And then, so these were people who were critical and didn't necessarily believe in the central tenet of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, that God gave the Torah to the Jews at Mount Sinai and that the Torah actually is the word of God. Once people began to doubt that, um, and that's where skepticism comes in, then many other things come tumbling down. And after that, you have heretics. And those are people who actually reject the idea that God gave the Torah to the Jews necessarily. And then there were atheists and agnostics all the way at the other end of the spectrum. And of course, people changed over time. You might start out as an enlightened person and become an atheist, or you might stay in one position all the time. And I would just say that these categories of religious doubt are also gendered. Um, They were mostly um, describing men um, who could be, there was a long history of skepticism and heresy in Jewish religious writings, not so much about women. So women weren't even really included in this kind of conversation. And and this kind of doubt, my argument is, is this kind of life-changing doubt needs to be studied through ethnography, through participant observation. Um, And in the anthropology of religion, there's been a number of scholars have shown, have remarked that there's been less focus on doubt and more on faith. Um, And so I am kind of joining the recent body of literature that's starting to think about how ways of studying religious doubt as a very important part of the constitution of religious life. So you write that the current crisis of authority has its roots in the Jewish blogosphere of the mid-2000s, and that those writers saw themselves in comparison to the Jewish Enlightenment of the mid-18th to mid-19th centuries in Europe. So tell us about this. Sure. Um, So this is not a connection that I made initially until I noticed that a lot of the bloggers and also the people living double lives, not all bloggers were living double lives or were hidden heretics, but many were, that they actually called themselves maskilim, which is the Hebrew word for Jewish enlighteners. So men named themselves this, and that led me to start to wonder why. Um, And one of the things I learned was that many of the bloggers and double lifers more generally, actually were reading Jewish Enlightenment literature. The Jewish Enlightenment was influenced by the European Enlightenment, but it came later. Um, And they were actually reading a lot of um, the literature that Maskilim from Europe had written because it was available in Jewish bookstores in their neighborhoods. And it was easy to kind of go hang out in a bookstore and snoop around instead of going to a library, which would be much more controversial. Hanging out in a bookstore was not very controversial. And so they could really read around and um, they were reading some of that literature. I think that um, both periods of time shared very similar social um, moments of social change in the European enlight in the Jewish Enlightenment and today there were new opportunities for participation as citizens, not necessarily only as Jews. 
there were new technologies in the Jewish Enlightenment. It was the printing press. And of course, now it's the internet. So that, you know, the early 2000s, um, 2003, blogging became very easy for anybody to participate in with WordPress and different templates, very easy to download and just use. Um, so there were these new technologies um, and both groups, both the, the Jewish enlighteners of the past and the bloggers today really perceive themselves to be critiquing the contemporary Jewish rabbinical leadership, the establishment, what they call the system. And um, they both seem to feel that it was too radicalized and too stringent. And they saw their writing as a kind of critique um, and as re, 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 um, reviving a kind of more authentic Judaism. And a number of people actually said that to me, like we're finding the real Judaism, um, not what we call today. And some of them call this Taliban Judaism of today, which is a funny reference. Um, what's interesting to me is that both um, the rabbis of today, the rabbinic leadership, and the people who were critiquing them both shared a kind of belief about the past or an ideology of the past. And that's the idea that the past is actually at a higher moral level. It's called Yuridas Hadoiris, that the, the generations sort of decrease the further away they are from the revelation at Mount Sinai. And so to claim that you were like a Jewish enlightener was actually to lay claim to a kind of higher level of heretic. Because in the contemporary period, if you express um, religious doubts too openly or heresy too openly, oftentimes you're considered crazy or that there's something wrong with you, that you have some kind of mental illness. And so um, that claiming of being like the enlightenment of the past was a way to kind of say, no, we're intellectuals and we have intellectual critiques of the Judaism today that we were brought up with. Um, what was really interesting to me um, was that the blogging that I read today, and that is still available, actually, some of it, um, used a lot of the same written genres that Maskilim or the Jewish Enlighteners of the past did, particularly autobiography. So in a way, you can think of a blog as a kind of autobiography um, where they experimented with language, um, with different kinds of um, poetry and with self-expression. Um, and I think that's a really important and I think was a very troubling activity. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but for men, there's um, a notion that when you have free time, you should be using it to study the Torah. And if you're not, that's a waste of Torah, a bitul Torah. So by writing oftentimes in English or sometimes using certain forms of Yiddish, but mostly in, in English and um, sometimes with a lot of mixing in from Hebrew terms and Yiddish expressions. That was a kind of leisure writing online with other people who shared your critique usually of the system. And that was in some ways a really troubling and undermining um, of the religious um, both religious authorities and the role of men, of religious men, which was, you know, here you are writing your blog instead of studying Torah. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the blogs, which got increasingly popular, 
until 2008, um, when most people switched over to so other forms of social media, but which really hit a peak in 2005, 2006, was because many of the men, um, and it was mostly men, I should really say, um, I think part of it is that women had less access to technology. Uh, they didn't always work outside the home. Sometimes they did, and then they sometimes had access to technology, but they also had much less free time. They were in charge of households, running households, taking care of the kids. And I think um, ultra-Orthodox women were less comfortable speaking in the ultra-Orthodox public sphere um, because what happened with the blogs and all the comments back and forth and the long um, exchanges below the blogs um, was that um, men were really uh, posting, writing posts and having conversations in a way that was very familiar. They used language. They, it was almost Talmudic. They would argue certain points. And even though some of their arguments were about things like evolution or, um, you know, uh, like they read a lot of Stephen, of um, Dawkins, you know, they talked about atheism. They read a lot of theology or biblical criticism at the same time. It was a very male environment with a lot of inside information and ways of talking and references to biblical and Talmudic texts that women often didn't have access to. Um, so my argument is that in a way it created a kind of heretical counterpublic. It undermined the ultra-Orthodox religious public and the authority of the rabbis, um, but it created a very male heretical space where people could exchange ideas. And almost everyone I talked to across the board said that um, the blogging and seeing the comment threads below convinced them that they weren't crazy, that their doubts didn't make them crazy, and that they weren't all alone. Because it's a very terrifying thing to suddenly doubt everything you were raised with, I think. That's what people describe. And um, I think this was um, a kind of social environment, the blogosphere, the J blogs, where people really could not only experiment with expressing themselves and write about new experiences they were having, but to form relationships with other people. And um, the blogs didn't just stay online. People began, after they created a sense of trust online, began to meet offline in person too. And so some of those relationships that were formed online among those with shared doubts um, became in-person, face-to-face, long-term relationships that sustained um, each other and where they followed really over years. Um, and as that heretical counterpublic, both online and in person, grew louder and louder and remained anonymous mostly, a lot of um, rabbinic leadership really got concerned. People would talk about, I mean, people told me that they would talk about, you know, oh, did you read what so-and-so posted? And even people who were didn't have doubts heard about those um, bloggers. Some of them got a lot of press actually in um, more secular Jewish and mainstream media. And some of the bloggers met because a reporter actually introduced them to each other. And you said that you also found that the contemporary rabbinic leaders were very quick to blame their crisis of authority on the internet, which they ascribe perhaps an outsized power to corrupt pure Jewish souls in their way of thinking about it. Um, so how have they tried to combat this? So they, it what was interesting to me was um, it was really a process. So 
when the J blogs, the Jewish blogs were at their height, there weren't many um, restrictions in place on the internet. Um, the internet really got, you know, got started, I would say, or people in the religious communities, in the ultra-Orthodox communities started to use cell phones and just like everybody else in the late 90s, I guess. Um, but once the Jewish blogosphere got bigger and bigger, there were um, advisors to rabbis and Hasidic rebbies who um, actually printed out some of the blogs for their leaders to read, to show them how potentially serious um, these kinds of threats were. So one of the first things that happened was, and it was really over a 10-year period, I think, that's my sense of it, was that um, rabbis and rebbies, um, rebbies are Hasidic leaders and rabbis are from ultra-Orthodox um, yeshivish leaders, began to organize different groups together. Um, they organized, they, they would meet and create new um restrictions and and new ways forward in order to protect their um their uh followers there were huge rallies after the meetings of the rabbis and rebbies um to inform their followers and their um that that of the new policies and also to warn. I think there was a lot, those huge gatherings were really to warn ultra-Orthodox Jews of a new danger in their midst. And because they hadn't initially recognized how potentially dangerous the internet was for bringing people together, um, it was slowly that different rabbis and rebbies would warn about different dangers. They, they, by, I would say by 2012, 13, many, many rabbinic leaders, you know, were quick to say that the internet was one of the challenges of the generation. Each generation has its own challenge to Jewish existence. And they began to compare the internet to the Holocaust I saw an interesting circulating online. I saw an interesting uh, poster that said, you know, the internet, the Holocaust burned our bodies, but the internet burns our souls. So there were a lot of comparisons there. Um, so there were big rallies, both for men. I mentioned the city field. Um, it's called an Asifa. It was a rally for um, ultra Orthodox men where rabbis sort of laid the law down that many people warned about different things. Some people said it was pornography. Some people said it was that, you know, men and women were able to interact online in ways that they actually wouldn't be able to. Um, but basically these kinds of big rallies um, were times that rabbis were alerting the faithful to this new danger. So in addition to that city field rally, I went to, for example, an all women's rally. Um, it was for it was sponsored by a school, and schools have a very different role in ultra orthodox communities. There's con continuity across home and schools, and a rabbi leads the schools, and sometimes that's the same kind of rabbinic structure that is leading the whole community. So uh, usually messages, um, moral messages, messages about what you have access to, what you don't, what kind of food you should buy, how you should dress really the details of everyday life 
are usually reinforced across home and school. So the school sponsored a rally for young women and their mothers and required them to come. There were 15,000 women there. Um, and a series of different speakers came and not only blessed the women, but gave them authority um, that even if their husbands or their fathers were using the internet, that they should know that the internet was dangerous, especially dangerous to young boys who were learning the Torah because it might disrupt um, their concentration and um, that it was their their moral responsibility to protect their homes. So it kind of leveraged a role that Jewish women often have as protectors of the home. And it included, um, it included um, the internet and protection from the internet under that framework for women. Um, one of the ways that I have heard that the explanation was that Jews are naturally pure, their souls are pure, but the internet um, can actually disrupt what the natural, um, the natural, it's almost um, like a kind of conscience that Jews have. There are these two inclinations. It's a, the really, it's a theological notion of the person that you, as a Jew, have an inclination for good and an inclination for bad, and those two struggle. And the goal of each Jew is to struggle so that the inclination for good wins over the bad. And some of the explanations for the internet's danger um, that were more sophisticated than just exposure to what's called schmutz or porn um, is that the internet disrupted the natural time and space for a Jew to struggle with themselves. Because if you had a bad thought or a bad idea, you could just go online and immediately find a whole community of people who would who thought the same thing. So the natural kind of natural in quotes protections that were in place were disrupted by the internet. So this led a lot of rabbinic leadership working together again to put new rules in place for internet use. So there was um, filtering that was required. Um, if you didn't, you, if you were sending your children to a certain school, you had to sign um, a contract saying you would not have internet at home and that your smartphone would be filtered. Um, you had to commit to using a particular kind of filter usually. And um, I have heard lots of examples of people who, of men in particular, whose phones for work were not filtered and the school contacted them and said, we see that you, know, you have un unfiltered internet uh, either in your house or on your phone, and you signed a contract. And if you don't um, conform to our rules, then your kids are going to be kicked out of school. In 2012, that was that didn't happen as often. But 2015, somebody told me that his say so he got a call at home, and the principal said, "Your children are in my office. They're going to have to go home until your phone is filtered." So, um, and I actually attended a really interesting phone exchange that took place in a hotel in Brooklyn, where women were invited to bring their smartphones to a particular time and place, and they could exchange them for either a flip phone, which is also called a kosher phone, or a filtered phone. So a flip phone, obviously, just texts and calls. But if you wanted to keep your smartphone, you had to install a kosher filter. And some of the concerns um, that some of the people I worked with, people living double lives, were 
that um, not only was it expensive, you had to pay for that filtering, but also it was unclear how much access people had to your phone. Um, and I guess finally, that the way that um, most recently that I have seen um, rabbinic leadership responding is to really work on the younger generation. Um, so in schools and through schools where it, there's a kind of a, um, equivalency made between um, some kind of contamination, like Gentile contamination and access to the internet, sometimes even touching a smartphone. Um, I have some, I heard some examples of, you know, moral dilemmas that teenagers had when their parents said, can you pass me my phone? And they needed a smartphone for work. And it might even be a filtered smartphone, but some of those kids had heard in assemblies and from their teachers, like, don't even touch a smartphone. It could contaminate you. Um, at the same time, uh, having a uh, flip phone could be, has become, I think, a kind of marker of a certain place on a religious spectrum of kind of a higher level of spirituality. Um, a young woman that I spent some time with a teenager, I really only had access to one, um, but she went from using a smartphone to switching to a flip phone. And um, it was it was part of the journey that she was making from questioning to having more um, more of a commitment to living a certain kind of Judaism. And I will say that there were also um, part of that school effort was uh, these um, a, a kind of trading cards that um, they were they were um, sort of like how kids you know trade cards like baseball cards, but um, they were shomrim cards, which is a play. A shomer, a shomrim are the the particular um, guard, not guards exactly. They are uh, the emergency corps workers um, that ultra orthodox Jews have who are, they pay them themselves, they're part of their, their volunteers, but it means to protect your community basically. Um, and so showroom cards show the effects through cartoons and, you know, um, drawings of the effect, the dangerous effects that having a smartphone can have on Jews. And, uh, for example, it shows a picture, one of them shows a picture of, um, an ultra-Orthodox Jew holding a smartphone who's all disheveled and has flies buzzing around him. And, and sort of the, the, a lot of them really show the kinds of absence of parents in similar to many secular concerns about actually smartphones, you know, a mother pushing her kid across the street and not really looking into oncoming traffic because she's holding her smartphone. But these, these uh, showroom cards actually created a lot of tensions um, in the community, it, both among those who had doubts and those who didn't, because in some ways they challenged parental authority. Um, because if your parent had a smartphone because they needed it for work, um, you couldn't be at a higher moral level than a parent. A parent is the person who transmits um, Jewish tradition, morality, and values to their child. That's part of your obligation as an observant Jew. And so for a child to be in a kind of higher moral position by rejecting smartphones while a parent didn't, people 
many people thought that those were really problematic. So there's been tension around those cards. They were discontinued. I saw a YouTube video where one ultra-Orthodox father kicked over a table of those cards that were being distributed just on, uh, on 13th Avenue. And, um, but then I heard they were being produced again. So I guess it's sort of up in the air what's going to happen to them. But so those are all the kinds of ways that um, rabbinic leadership has attempted to control the internet, which let's face it, is a really hard thing to control, especially because so many men in particular, but also women are in uh, small businesses that rely on the internet. Yeah, I can only imagine how um, that would be like trying to stop the ocean or something. Exactly. Yeah, especially every year that goes by, it becomes more and more integrated into our lives. Uh, I wonder how they're doing in the coronavirus lockdown. Well, I think that's going to be, that's actually going to be, I've been following that. And that's going to be a really important moment because when you're stuck inside your small apartment with 10 kids and no school and boys not continuing their education is a serious thing. I mean, that's what, that's a, that's a theological obligation as a as an observant Jew that boys are studying Torah and that's what rebuilds the world in some ways and brings the Messiah ever closer, even in a kind of abstract way. So whether boys are going to be allowed to go and do their studies on Zoom or not is a real question. There's a lot of dissent in the community right now. And there, for sure, there are going to be lots of un- acknowledged iPad use. I mean, I I know my parent friends are already saying there's too much screen time during this pandemic. And it can't just be, I, I can't imagine that parents are not also downloading. And another thing is there's actually a lot, it's not as if ultra-Orthodox Jews have been anti-technology all of these years. Like they have been extremely savvy at taking new technologies and elevating them and making them Jewish. And um, the internet has posed a particular problem. And I think that's why the Jewish blogs were so um, upsetting in some ways is because usually if Jewish content is in the new technology, it elevates it and makes it Jewish. But here in the Jewish blogs, you had Jewish content written by Jewish men who were clearly knowledgeable about Judaism and particularly ultra-Orthodoxy and knew the languages and the sources and everything. And we're still making fun of, parroting, satirizing, critiquing. And that really disruptive disrupted what I think of as a kind of semiotic ideology, which is a cultural belief about signs, meaning that that idea that technology is kind of empty and you can infuse your own meaning. It's empty of meaning and you can infuse a Jewish meaning and that elevates it. In general, what couldn't be elevated or was really threatening was usually censored. So TV, for example, though it was acceptable among some ultra-Orthodox Jews in the 50s, by the 60s and 70s, it was not acceptable. The same thing with um, with videotapes and then DVDs, not acceptable. But then as the new technology of digital media came in, it became those older forms became increasingly more quote unquote kosher. They're called kosher because they're not threatening anymore. And there's now actually a lot of music, for example, that can be played on um, on 
audio cassettes still or um, CDs or DVDs that have Jewish content that are aimed at Jewish children. There are a lot of games and stories for kids that are modeled on secular entertainment, but that have Jewish content and that are totally unproblematic. Um, the internet poses its own problem because especially with a smartphone, so much can be um, done secretively. Yeah. Um, in the next section, you turn your focus towards um, the experience of uh, specific people mm -hmm. um, and you kind of group them by their types of experiences. So let's turn now to the um, to some of your examples of those doubters who remain married to firm believers. Um, and you look at the kinds of cha challenges that they face at home. So tell us about some of these people and what they went through. Um, sure. It, it was really my privilege to get to know these people um, who had serious doubts and also uh, real moral dilemmas that they were navigating as they tried to both be true to themselves um, as best they could and also not hurt the people they loved. So one of the first people I met was, I, I call him Yitzi. Obviously, everyone that I speak about is with a pseudonym, and many of the details have been changed to protect their anonymity. But Yitzi is an example of somebody who was ofgeklärt, meaning he was open-minded. He was keeping all of the Jewish laws, but um, he didn't necessarily believe, and over time he grew to actually doubt that, that God had given the Jews the Torah at Mount Sinai. And not only was that a break in what he had been taught, but it caused him to actually begin to doubt that his Rebbe had any particular authority, moral authority over him. He said, why should I listen to him when all he did was study a little more than I did? Does he really know more? And so he began to really question in terms of his own authority to make moral decisions. Now, he was lucky in some ways because he and his wife had a very strong marriage before he, he was always a questioner, but before he took his questioning further. And I think his case in particular, and some of the other men that I also write about, show the kind of gender dynamics that happen um, because his wife loved him and he loved his wife. And he, he did confess to her eventually. It's called actually using a lot of um, metaphors of the closet, um, coming out of LGBTQ, but he came out to her because he was, you know, he loved her and he didn't want to lie to her. Um, so he told her that he had doubts. But when he tried to share some of his new ideas or tell her historical um, facts that he was learning about archaeology, for example, which challenged some of the Jewish timeline that um, she had learned about and that their community accepted, it really troubled her. And she, as, I mean, the, the organization of gender in, a, in an ultra-Orthodox household is that the man, the husband is supposed to be the leader in Ruchnius, in areas of spirituality, and the wife takes care of the family. Um, what happens when the man's level of spirituality either slips, as they say in Yiddish, or um, is suddenly not what it should be, it puts the wife in a really uneasy position of either being the keeper of the family's spirituality or the moral authority at home. And that's something that, 
that surprised me as a feminist and a, a secular Jewish woman that this was not a, a welcome form of authority at all. It seemed to many of the women, the, the still religious spouses, that um, that it was a it was a, a form of authority that sort of showed them that things were not as they should be, that their homes were not as their community leaders, their parents. Uh, everyone who they valued told them it should be. With Yitzi, what happened to him was that over time, he himself stopped practicing as much outside the home, but he kept everything in the home for his children and for his wife. And he told me that little by little, his wife sort of relaxed on some of the religious stringencies and agreed to try new things and didn't criticize him too much when he, you know, on vacation would take off his traditional um, clothing, which marked him very much and just wear shorts and a t-shirt, for example, um, and tuck his long side curls under a baseball hat. So she relaxed a little bit in order to prioritize her marriage, basically. It wasn't something that she wanted but um, he was more successful than many people in what is called flipping somebody and sort of bringing her over a little bit to his way of thinking. Remember that men and women also have very different access to um, religious education. And while some women, some girls do learn about the Bible and they learn uh, Hebrew, Lushan Koidish, and Yiddish, their level of fluency in religious um, uh, certain other religious texts like the Talmud, they don't really have access to it. And they, they're just not as fluent in those things. So even if they wanted to be the religious leaders at home, they often don't have the religious background and knowledge to do that. Um, another person that I met and spent time with was Esty. So this is from the woman's perspective now of somebody who's doubting. Um, she was really since the time she was a young girl, she was a very spiritual and observant girl. She never wanted to, you know, live a secular life or anything, but she was frustrated because she wanted to, um, as she told me, pray like a boy. Like she wanted to be as involved in public religious Jewish life as boys around her were doing, as her brothers were, for example. Um, but she really couldn't. That wasn't acceptable. She wanted to be a rabbi, for example, when she grew up. But that, there was no space for that. It just wasn't, it wasn't an acceptable dream. And her family actually grew worried about her. They thought that those were kind of unnatural um, things to want for a young woman. But she got married um, and she tried her best to sort of fit in. And she read a lot of Jewish religious texts. She's a very bright woman. And she lost her faith, actually, when she um, was reading um, at her office job online. She was reading an interpretation of a Jewish text that she had been introduced to in school. And she read the, def the interpretation that she had learned in school. And then she read a number of other interpretations that for, were uh, more, I would say, liberal interpretations of what this particular requirement was. It was about not teaching girls to study, the, not allowing girls to study the Talmud. Um, and she had a kind of aha moment where she saw that what she had been taught as religious fact, as truth, was in fact one interpretation. And it really shook her faith in a profound way. Um, 
She didn't change her outward practice after that, but she began to read more and more. She also read the Jewish blogs. And one day, and this is a very common tale, she she kept almost all religious practice, but it turned out that she used her phone um, to text on the Sabbath and her husband found her out. She didn't confess to him. Women don't always come out to their husbands as much as husbands come out to their wives. Um, and unlike Yitzi, because her husband was the leader in, in spirituality in their home, he was really upset and he sent her to rabbis to talk, to activists. She herself sought out help from a woman consultant, her a bride teacher. She was sent to therapists. Um, and nothing convinced her. And at a certain point, she decided to just stop seeking help. And she made a decision that she was going to stay with her family. And her husband agreed for the sake of the children. Um, although he was, um, his rabbi said, if you want to begin to divorce, you can. She, but he agreed to keep trying with her. But she did decide, she made two decisions that kind of saved her. She decided to not have any more children. And she decided to go to try to get her degree online, her college degree. Um, and so you can kind of see the implications and, and the different uh, fallout for men and women. Men have much more um, kind of flexibility um, in their own homes than women do. It can still be very, very difficult um, for a man who has lost his faith and keeps practicing um, and a wife who is religiously stringent. I, I, I remember one story of a woman who had to make the Kiddush on the Sabbath wine because if a husband is no longer a believer, his touch is going to contaminate the wine. And so she had to make it. And this was a kind of um, position of authority that, that was really painful to her. And she had to make decisions for her family that were trade-offs that she didn't want to make, but that she had to make, which were lowering the level of religious stringency in the home in order to save her marriage. So there were all kinds of moral calculations that people had to make. Um, I'll just say there was another woman, like not everybody was actually in moral torment all the time. Um, I met another uh, woman who, who really felt like she had it all living a double life. She had lost her faith by going to college which is actually not that unusual for an ultra-Orthodox girl to go these days. Um, she was able to work outside the home. And another friend introduced her to somebody who was also living a double life and was married and had children of his own. And they have fallen in love and have been in a long-term relationship um, and, and feel like they're both able to raise their families and live a Jewish life that they feel is important culturally, not so much religiously, but culturally and protect their children. Most of all, while they're still able to fulfill a certain part of their own desires um, for happiness. So you also examine the practice of various types of religious therapy practiced within ultra Orthodox, excuse me, ultra Orthodox communities. Mm -hmm. So what are those like and what types of people are involved with that? 
So I didn't actually expect to be working on religious therapy. I didn't even know religious therapy existed. Um, but what I found out talking to so many people and spending time with people who were living double lives um, was that one of the really common experiences was when a person either confessed or was outed by a spouse, and it was usually because a spouse had noticed that religious practice was not as it should be at home, um, then the first kind of line of defense was to go and talk to a rabbi. Um, there are particular kinds of rabbis. They're called rabbis, uh, they do Kirv Krovim, which is, um, Kirv rabbis are rabbis who do outreach to secular Jews and try to bring them back into the fold. Um, but in the 90s, when concern over people, ultra-Orthodox Jews, particularly adolescents leaving, um, got more prevalent in ultra-Orthodox communities, um, some of those rabbis began to use the techniques that they had developed to um, work with secular Jews on Jews who had been born religious, ultra-Orthodox, but who had questions that remained unanswered. And so some of these rabbis um, were used to arguing and addressing all kinds of questions. So, so doubters would often get sent to them, those with life-changing doubt. If that was not effective, um, and other conversations with other forms of activists, self-appointed activists, um, was not effective. Sometimes they would be sent to life coaches. That is sort of the pre-therapy step too. Um, and it's less stigmatized than therapy. Um, and those, you know, life coaches are like life coaches anywhere. There's less training and less oversight, but they have some access to therapeutic concepts and of listening in a kind of non-judgmental way. Some of the life coaches that I met, and it was tough to meet some of them, they didn't all want to talk to me, um, in contrast actually to those living double lives who I feel like wanted their stories told because they really wanted to show their communities and their families that they were struggling intellectually and emotionally, that they didn't just have emotional problems. Um, but anyway, so they often were sent to life coaches. When that failed too, if the person was still not convinced, oftentimes people were sent to a religious therapist. And religious therapy, I believe, was started kind of in the late 90s. And it, it came out of a, a strange meeting of um, ultra-Orthodox, uh, what's called Musser. It's a kind of Jewish philosophy meeting self-help. And one of the prime... Um, the real um, innovators of that was Rabbi Tversky, who who merged the twelve step program with ultra orthodox with 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 Jewish philosophical texts, not only ultra orthodox, and and there was a, a nice synergy there, and that made the idea of therapy um, much more accessible to people. There's a large self help section of Rabbi Tversky's books, for example, in prominent Jewish bookstores in Brooklyn. Um, and so there's, uh, there in the nineties, there was an establishment of, um, an Orthodox Jewish therapist national organization, Jewish therapy. I mean, there's a, a lot of, it's a relatively young discipline and, um, there's a lot of variation in it. There are a lot of serious therapists who have training, who have their MSW degrees, have gone for and, and further who are getting a doctoral degree. 
Um, there are at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who call themselves quote unquote Torah therapists who have very little formal training, who are good listeners and people feel comfortable with them because they are also ultra orthodox. Um, so there's a huge range of orthodox therapy. I talked to a very highly professionalized therapist who said there's no such thing as Jewish therapy. There's just therapy or, you know, there's just psychology and therapy. There's not a Jewish version of it. But one of the things that I found particularly interesting was the ways that the double life um, folks that I was meeting and talking to often described a kind of triangulation of care where a rabbi would talk to them about their religious doubting and then would send them to a religious therapist um, to talk about their psychological um, issues because it's actually not very surprising. When you have this kind of life-changing doubt, you're often just racked by depression and anxiety. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very emotionally, um, it's an upheaval of your entire existence. So it's not surprising that there would be these kinds of um, psychological, a kind of psychological component to um, life-changing doubt, but they would be sent to religious psychologists to treat those aspects without talking very much about their religious doubts or even really that much about, um, you know, what had led to those religious doubts. So the triangulation that I talk about is really where rabbis become the authorities on what's right and wrong, the ethics of being a good Jew and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And religious therapists are the people who are in charge of helping people often through medicalizing in the worst case, kind of pathologizing religious doubt um, and, and helping people um, to work through some of those issues. Now there were many religious therapists who helped very much people who were struggling with their spouse, for example, Um, people went to family therapy, they went to couples therapy there were a smaller handful of religious therapists that a number of people living double lives suggested to me were um, too invested in keeping um, people with doubts within the religious fold. And that's where the triangulation could get, I think, dangerous in some ways. And journalists have written about this, um, the kind of that kind of working together, perhaps too closely of rabbis and therapists. One of the um, one of the presidents, a past president of the of the Orthodox Jewish Therapists National Organization, actually wrote a fascinating letter um, that he circulated in Hebrew and in English, and he allowed me to use um, about explaining what therapy was to rabbis um, and kind of taking on the non judgmental, um, non directive aspect to psychotherapy that's really different from what rabbis do. A rabbi will tell you this is right, this is wrong, do this, don't do this. But a good therapist really can't tell you that, you know? Um, One of the tensions that I discovered for, again, a smaller handful of therapists was that feeling that you can listen non-judgmentally, but maybe 
as an Orthodox Jew yourself, you yourself are invested in in helping this person stay true to what you see as the truth of ultra-Orthodoxy. Um, so it was a really complicated um, and really diverse set of people. And even in the sort of five or six years that I was doing my research, I noticed really big changes um, among uh, Orthodox Jewish therapists. And what I mean by Orthodox Jewish therapists really ran the gamut. There were some fewer ultra-Orthodox therapists, fewer Hasidic therapists. There were some. They don't usually have as much access to higher education. There were some yeshivish. There were more modern Orthodox therapists. So some of the therapists um, were critical, actually, of ultra-Orthodox education. And they wanted um, young children to be able to ask more questions. They thought that part of the problem with people leaving was that children were not allowed to ask as many questions, that there was a kind of one-mold-fit-all and that if you did, you weren't a terrific Torah learner, then you know there was sort of no place for you to gain alternate forms of prestige. So they were internally critical too of other forms of orthodoxy. But um, even again in the in the relatively short time that I was doing my research, I saw some fascinating changes among religious therapists. For example, um, there's a group that's called Tangled Parenting. Um, that actually has some rabbi's stamp of approval where they suggest that um, your relationship with your child, even a child who has left the community, is more important than religious law. Not than religious law, but that, you know, usually if a child leaves, a parent would cut off ties with that child. Um, But in this case, these religious therapists believe that the relationships in families are the priority and that you should still try to find a way. You hope that you can bring your child back, but even if your child never returns to an ultra-Orthodox life, that you should still maintain ties and and that that's the kind of primary goal. And I was at um, uh, a religious therapist convention too that I went to that was really interesting where one of the religious therapists who was modern Orthodox, not ultra-Orthodox, so less religiously stringent, and also I think the difference is more involved in the non-Jewish world and the secular Jewish world. Um, he said in a really amazing presentation, he said, you know, five years ago or four years ago, I said here that if children, adolescents and adults have religious doubts, that there was always some religious, there was always some trauma that they had lived through. They were either sexually abused or, um, you know, they had had some kind of trauma. Don't forget that, like just 10 years prior, really in 2006 to 2008, there was that whole sexual abuse scandal where parents learned that that many of, not many, a small percentage of ultra-Orthodox rabbis who had been accused of sexual abuse of their students um, had merely been reshuffled and had there were never any consequences for that. So there was a lot of um, kind of, sensitivity to that. So this, at his in his presentation, this religious therapist said, four years ago, I said, if somebody had religious doubts, it was because something terrible happened to them. Now I'm standing before you and I'm saying, somebody can have religious doubts just because religion might not work for them, especially if you're a woman. Like maybe it just doesn't work for you and we don't know why. So I thought that was a really profound shift. So I think religious therapy is changing in all kinds of ways. And there's a lot of self-awareness among the therapists. 
Well, I wanted to ask you next, actually, about the experiences of parents in particular um, who go through this kind of circumstance and how they're able to continue to um, have relationships with their children. So instead of this being the the child that has the doubt, for example, mm-hmm. um, this would be the cases of parents who have doubt, life-changing doubt, and how do they navigate their relationship, especially with smaller children, do they try to be honest with them? How honest? Obviously, you know, it would depend on the child's age. But um, what did they and what do they feel about the importance of faith in their children's lives? Yeah, I, I again, didn't realize how key this would be to my own work. Um, I'm interested in families and children in general. But um, I, I was always asking double lifers, like, how do you manage this in your home? You know, they all had children. Um, and one of the main takeaways that I learned was that it wasn't so much that those living double lives wanted their children to leave their communities and become, you know, secular, um, and, you know, lawyers and doctors living outside their communities. It was more that, um, they wanted their children to, have a choice in how they live their lives. And I think this was something that they felt really poignantly that they hadn't had a choice. I mean, a choice is a very, um, it's a core kind of American liberal principle. It's not coming out of nowhere. So I think there's that. But um, I think many valued, not again, not all, there were some people who really dreamed of leaving, uprooting their families and just moving elsewhere and having a totally different life. But there were many that I met and it surprised me, um, although it shouldn't have, who valued what they had started to call the lifestyle of ultra-Orthodoxy, meaning that they really valued the warmth and the closeness and the emphasis on family and the time spent together and the the, the strong value system that ultra-Orthodox families all, often have. Um, and so... They wanted their children to be able to have access to that, but they also wanted to feel that their children were making kind of informed decisions. But at the same time, they didn't feel like they could just totally come clean the way they often did to a spouse. They couldn't, even some spouses, they couldn't, but they didn't feel that it would be ethical to, especially to younger children, to just come clean because there's a lot of feeling among parents and educators in those communities that any kind of confusion can be very disturbing. And that's why when I mentioned earlier the the continuity across home and school, meaning that children get a very integrated, consistent message through all the adults in their lives. So what parents, like a, a husband or a wife who was living a double life more often than not did, was to give small hints, and I'll give you a bunch of examples, but to give small hints or clues or opportunities for expanding their kids' ways of seeing the world, often very subtly, um, because they didn't want to confuse or upset their kids. Um, At the same time, they wanted to encourage them. As they said, they wanted them to learn to be critical thinkers. They wanted them to... um, not be racist, to have a more tolerant view, to know that there were all kinds of Jews and maybe that was okay. There wasn't just one kind of way of being Jewish. So these are kind of radical ideas. So men and women, again, had very different opportunities for doing this. So 
For example, um, with very small kids, one mom that I know would um, not let her children um, call the cleaning lady the goita, which means the Gentile woman, basically. She said, you have to use her name. She's a person. She's a person like you, and we can't, we can't talk like that. So something so small as saying that somebody who is not you is another person that we should give um, equal recognition and respect to, it's, it's small, but that's important. And her kids got the message. And sometimes when her son was telling her things that his teacher had told him that day, and he said something about Gentiles, he said, I know you don't like that language, but my teacher used that language. Sometimes she um, let her children see her hair. Usually uh, mothers don't do that. They cover their hair at all times. She started to wear pajamas, for example, with legs, so pants. And at first it frightened her son, but then he said, why do you look like that? You know, you don't look like a Jewish mama. And she said, but I am, I'm your Jewish mother and I'll always love you. So small things like that. Fathers who were living double lives often had more um, ability to kind of challenge the religious doctrine that their children were learning. Um, One father told me a story that somebody else had told him it was a secondhand story, but he said that his friend um, used to every um, holiday where children learn that there are a certain number of pomegranate seeds. It's they they learn that if you count the pomegranate seeds, it's six hundred and thirteen, which is the same number of commandments that Jews have. And that father would always say to his children that's actually not scientifically true. Let's open up the pomegranate and count all the seeds and I'll show you that that's not true. So that's a very um, kind of aggressive way to challenge what a child is learning. As children got older, um, they, um, they were sometimes privy more to their parents' confidences, especially along gender lines. So mothers and daughters shared more as and fathers and sons often shared more, especially as boys began to stay later and later in their schooling. They were often out of the home for long periods at a time. So sometimes fathers would keep a secret with their sons. Sometimes mothers would keep a secret with their sons. Sometimes children, teens became more religious. Sometimes they became less religious and were um, sort of collaborating with their parents. One girl asked her father to keep a pair of jeans secretly in his car next to his own secret pair of jeans that they would secretly change into when they went out at night their own separate ways. Um, And she confided him in, you know, like when she kissed a boy for the first time, something she could never tell her religious mother. So there were all kinds of sort of consequences. Um, I was lucky to be introduced to a teenager um, who, who agreed to speak with me, um, who told me how difficult it had been for her as she became increasingly observant and began to realize that her mother, her mother's faith, faith was not really what it looked like from the outside and the kinds of struggles that she went through. Um, and in fact, she asked me at one of the ends of our time together, like, wouldn't you be upset if your son became religious? And I, I thought she was not the only person to ask me that. Somebody else asked me, wouldn't I be upset if my husband became religious? And I thought it was a really helpful way of thinking about it because I would be, because I re- realized if my son became religious, 
we suddenly wouldn't share a moral universe. We'd probably have different political beliefs. We would start to value different things. It would separate us in a way. And so it was actually a very provocative and helpful question that she asked me. Um, but I, I think it was tough on, on, um, on older kids, especially. Um, although again, not all. Um, the, the couple who was in love and was carrying on a long-term affair that I mentioned, each married off um, a child while I was doing fieldwork and each invited me to the wedding. And they had, it was really interesting, like, because basically each wedding was an ultra-Orthodox wedding and they were reproducing the very society that they were in disagreement with, but they made very small changes that they hoped would change the lives of their children. Like they encouraged higher education. They hoped that their kids would go to college after they were married. They made sure that the match was um, a really, I mean, all parents make sure their kids' matches are good, but they allowed their kids to meet the prospective bride and groom more often. Um, they made sure that the home was set up so that they would have maybe more um, time to sit and really get to know each other. Um, and so even at the moment that they were questioning their own ultra-Orthodox communities, they were actively involved in some ways in reproducing it. Um, and one guy, I always think about this, one guy said to me, would I be happy if my son became a lawyer? Sure, that would be fine, but, and lived a secular life. And then he said, but I, it would separate me from him too. We wouldn't have the same frames of reference. It might distance us. So I think there's a lot of ambiguity, um, and kind of mixed feelings there that I hadn't expected. So what do you think the future might look like for the next generation of ultra-Orthodox doubters? Um, I, I think this moment is really interesting. Um, uh, you know, this whole, my whole project was really a suggestion that, a, a, an investigation of this moment in time, and I ended the research really in 2019, where I suggested there was a crisis of authority going on, especially for Hasidic Jews. And many of the people that I worked with, the double lifers, were Hasidic. The therapists were mostly yeshivish, I should say. Um, they actually, um, they were really disillusioned with a lot of their leadership. There had been power struggles um, when the original Rebbies who were from Eastern Europe had died and there were succession battles. There was the sexual abuse scandals. It was increasingly, it is increasingly difficult as we all know, maybe you don't, but to live in New York, it's really expensive. It's really hard if you don't have a higher degree. And if your life is constrained by, you know, different, where your religious life constrains you from seeking out certain forms of employment. Um, so all of this is going on. I think there's a kind of moment where, and the internet, I think, has really supported these kinds of questioning. But I, I'm wondering if the current pandemic that we're living through is going to even further kind of open things up for um, certain ultra orthodox communities. You know, there a lot of of uh, rabbinic leadership was slow to respond to uh, the mandates to socially distance. It's in some ways, being socially distant is anathema. You know, it 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 it, it create it's impossible if you're an ultra orthodox Jew. I mean, people are doing it now, but it's really difficult. And there are still secret prayer groups meeting. They don't usually use technology, at least not in public. 
um, even in the public of their house. And so, you know, it's really hard to stay at home. Um, but a lot of the rabbis initially said, like, just pray. This is not going to affect us. We should keep doing our work of having our boys learn Torah and Talmud. And then they had huge spikes in their communities because of the lack of social distancing and because, unfortunately, the holiday of Purim was right before the, the outbreak really took hold and people were together and exchanging food and touching and in big you know groups celebrating. So I think there's a kind of... Um, a kind of breakdown in some ways. I mean, we'll see if that's actually an outcome. I'm wondering that um, because the rabbinic leadership didn't really serve the community until too late. Um, hopefully not too late, but until quite late in the game. And I'm wondering if if there's going to be a lot, as we talked about earlier, if there's going to be um, a gradual sort of integration of of technology of digital technology in homes as people get increasingly used to it and as it is increasingly used for Jewish purposes like people have funerals now um, on zoom sometimes and yeshivish boys are studying Torah through zoom so is that gonna resignify um, what it means to use digital technology maybe, Maybe kosher phones and kosher computers will become integrated into everyday life more than they have. So I'm wondering about that. I know I end um, my book with the fact that I have heard about a new kind of Hasidic group. It's called uh, Hasidic Light or Modern Hasidic, um, who are Hasidic in style of worship, but who don't observe the same stringencies. Um, and so they're, they're not becoming modern Orthodox, which doesn't really work for them. I think it doesn't feel right. Um, but they're also wanting to open up things. Um, and so I think it's a question. We really, I feel like it's a moment in the history of ultra Orthodoxy in the United States where, um, they're at a crossroads. Right. And you're not the only one talking about this. Many of our listeners um, may have noticed, uh, coincidentally, there's also this show on Netflix right now called Unorthodox, which follows um, the life choices of a woman that could have been somebody like someone that you interviewed yeah. for your book, who um, leaves the ultra-Orthodox community to set out and try her own way. And you... Um, you talk to a lot of uh, double lifers who also experimented with non-Orthodox ways of living, maybe not quite as drastically as this woman in the show. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to ask you if you'd seen it and if it rang true with some of the experiences that you saw or how, how that went. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, uh, unorthodox is just one of many recent and really fascinating uh, memoirs and also then film documentaries and miniseries. Shtisel was, you know, the past couple of years. And um, One of Us is a documentary too about people who are trying to leave. Um, you know, my work is very different, as you say, because double lifers stay. They don't leave. People who leave are called off the derech or OTD. That means they have left the path. Um, I did see that, of course, being home a lot. Uh, I watch that. <laughs> um, and, 
parts of it really do did ring true to me. Um, I read Deborah Feldman's um, memoir when it came out, which was really interesting. Um, the I, I, one critique that I've read and that I that I agree with. I, first of all, it was great to hear the Yiddish. Um, is that it's almost inconceivable why anybody would stay. I think the Hasidim, the Williamsburg Hasidim, the Samar Hasidim are portrayed very negatively um, in, in that, in that mini series. On the other hand, I think it's really fascinating that um, the filmmakers, and again, different from Deborah Feldman's original memoir, but focus on um, music and the role of creativity and personal self-expression um, as the kind of motivating force and one of the the ways that Esty as the character always says she's different. I mean, she's different in lots of ways. She doesn't have come from a traditional family. You know, she doesn't have her mother there and her father's an alcoholic. There are many problems with her family and she has problems with sex. Um, I didn't, I think in general that the Hasidic community is actually, in my experience, um, from what I've heard, deals with that more effectively than, than that bride teacher did. But be that as it may, I thought, I thought that some of the, um, the warmth and the closeness in families that I have seen and that people that I've worked with talk about wasn't there as much as I would have liked. That said, it was really fun to watch. And, um, and, and the, the part about Berlin, too, um, that seemed like a very idealized picture of Berlin. Um, but I, I think those kinds of stories are important to get out there, number one, for hopefully not exoticizing ultra-Orthodox Jews, but really to raise a kind of bigger question of what happens when you are part of a community and you no longer want to be in that community. Um, I think that's a kind of potentially universally um, accessible kind of question. And, and in my work, I, I looked at, um, some double life Mormons because there's a parallel to, and there are also some double life, uh, Muslims, like people who are too deeply imbricated in their communities and in a way too old, like they have families already to be willing to hurt them by leaving. Um, and I think those kinds of moral decisions about how you then manage to, to keep both parts of your life, to both feel like you're exploring something that you need to do for yourself and also taking care of your family. are It's a very fine line to walk. Um, you asked me about some of the, the experimentations. I mean, the classic one that that I heard again and again, and I would say that the, the ways that the sort of secret parts of living a double life are a kind of reclaiming of adolescence, especially among boys and um, especially among men, that they felt like their their adolescence was so structured by religious learning and study that they didn't have ever time to have, you know, just fun. So there's a lot of partying. I met people in bars. Um, there's a lot of dancing. There's mixed gendered getting together, even just to sing. But what surprised me was that a lot of the get togethers actually were in the context of ultra-Orthodox life. They were the night before the Sabbath when a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews, mainly men, hang out and and hang and sing together. They sing Sabbath songs together sometimes. But in some of the parties that I went to, men and women sang together. But it was a very emotional time. So 
they were the kinds of activities were often sort of like mashups of ultra orthodox life, what people valued from that those kinds of communities, the food, the music, the the intimacy and the familiarity with their kind of imagining of secular New York life. So people often learned how to ride a bicycle and they posted that on social media. That was almost like a rite of passage because a lot of ultra orthodox kids don't ride bikes after a certain age. So adults who had never learned to ride a bike, you know, would take a city bike, which is a bike that, you know, you can just use your credit card and there's very little trace of it. And they would practice bike riding. Some went on ski trips, like away from the sort of prying eyes of neighbors and, and learn this bourgeois leisure activity. Um, uh, sometimes women just hung out. Women went out much less as far as I could see. There were fewer women living double lives, but they also got together less. It was much more complicated. They had many more family obligations. Um, but I went to a barbecue, for example, um, where women just hung out and had a good time. But there were women who came from a range of positions in terms of religious doubt and faith. And and it was a very unjudgmental uh, environment. Sometimes people went to plays on Broadway or concerts. But again, oftentimes it was Jewish plays. Like I know some people saw Fiddler on the Roof, for example, when it was released off Broadway um, and went to Yiddish concerts. Um, so there was a, a kind of venturing out, but not too far, you know. And here in Unorthodox, you have Esty who really makes a complete break. Um, I don't know. I mean, my guess is there never is a complete break. Um, and I think part of the process of leaving, and there are a number of books that trace the process of leaving, show that it's it's much more complicated, that it isn't just a before and an after, that it's a long entangled process. Um, but it's still increasingly involved in the secular world. For the for the people that I spent time with, um, it was that sort of walking a fine line between building relationships with other people who shared their beliefs and experimenting with new forms of being social to also fulfilling their responsibilities and being part of their families. Oh, that's great. Um, and that makes sense, too, because I think that's true for a lot of um, a lot of religious folks who move more in the direction of, of having less faith or faith being less important to their lives. I think it's just like you say, it's a gradual process. Yes. It's not really um, drastic and sudden. Yeah. But um, yeah. But for the sake of a of a concise TV show, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and also it was it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, Ayla, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. This is really interesting, really fun stuff to hear about. Um, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yes. Well, um, I have been working on um, sort of tracing the ultra-Orthodox response to the pandemic. I found that really interesting. And I I actually began to pay attention to that, not only because it was in the news all the time, but because I also followed the measles outbreak. And I think there's an interesting relationship in terms of ultra-Orthodox um, perceptions of infectious disease. Again, like technology, ultra-Orthodox Jews don't reject medical medicine at all or science, certain forms of science. But I, I feel like science has to be broken down. It's not so simple as science, yes, science, no. And I, it's something that I'm interested in exploring, like, 
what is it about infectious disease and notions of um, who's vulnerable and who's not and what the kinds of treatments are. So I'm sort of exploring that. I also um, co-convene with a colleague, Orit Avishai, a New York working group on Jewish orthodoxies. Um, And we're going to be actually hosting a blog on responses um, among the ultra-Orthodox all over the world, actually, um, which could be interesting to follow. And our first one is going to include a review of unorthodox um, and the role of the arts. So that could be interesting to follow, too. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'm curious. Uh, sometimes you get the sense in certain evangelical communities, um, not all of them by any means, but sometimes that that um, susceptibility to disease is like a judgment from God or it displays some kind of, it's indicative of a moral weakness or something like this. Yeah. Do you get any of that within the Jewish community? No, I, I, I don't think so. No. Um, from what I've seen, and again, it's just, it's very preliminary um, but I think at least for the measles, um, outbreak, and I'm thinking it might be similar, I'm not sure, but, um, I know that some of the anti-vaccination material somehow made its way into ultra-Orthodox circles. It was mediated by a modern Orthodox, um, organization and presented in Jewish terms, but it included a lot of the vaccine hesitancy that does come out of some of the, um, not all, it's not all um, evangelicals, but it's a funny mix, I think, of evangelicals and um, libertarians and sort of conspiracy theorists more generally, like worries about the state and anxieties that the state is imposing certain things on them. So I think it's more about attention with the state. Um, and, and those kinds of tensions have played out in lots of um, ways over the, the past decades. Over, most recently, I would say over schooling, you know, and how much secular education boys' schools are obligated to include. Um, it plays out in real estate sometimes. Um, so I, I think it's not maybe post facto, like I know that some of the explanations for the Holocaust um, are about, you know, too many secular Jews or not taking responsibility for secular Jews. Um, so in that way, it's kind of a judgment from God. But right now, it seems like it's alternative explanatory frameworks about health and disease. Okay. All right. Well, that does sound like really, um, really valuable research, especially for right now. Yeah. So... So let me thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book and I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it was, I really appreciate uh, being on. <laughs>